0: Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening.
1: Today's reading is Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See! The home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be No more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest while the rest of us are seated.
0: Christmas is almost here. Uh not quite, but is it okay if I I wish you a Merry Christmas? M- Merry Christmas to you. There's still we're still in Advent uh, as we wait for Christmas, as we have waited for Christmas. Um, we're we're practicing waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. And we've come through a sermon series this Advent that uh, sees the light of God coming to the earth out of darkness more and more and more. And so this Sunday, we're talking about the end of all things, about that time when God will dwell among humanity, about the future where God is all and in all, where all glory, splendor, brightness, and day are here because God will be our God and we will be God's peoples. Before we look at What Revelation has to say about God's future, though, I want to address three rival visions of the future, three objections uh, to Revelation's image of the future, because we may be carrying those with us to the text. We come to the text, we come to the Bible with faith and longing, also with confusion and doubt, and so we need to let the Bible address that to the extent that we can, uh, and when we open the Bible, we can't just expect to find what we already believe to be true. We may learn something. We may hear a new word that comes out, uh, that calls out our wrongfulness. We may discover something about how to live more truly. So first we'll dis- consider these uh, three rival visions of God's future described in Revelation. And then we'll open up the text to hear it afresh. Does that sound okay? Uh, all right. So open your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation 21, uh, as we'll be looking at it from time to time. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. It is just extraordinary. It's very strange, too. Um, okay, the first rival vision to God's good future. These, the rival visions are things that I don't find particularly helpful or true, but just to be very clear about what's going on here. Okay, the first rival vision to God's future. Heaven will be boring. <laughs> heaven will be boring. As the talking heads sing, heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. Does anybody know this song? Yeah, all right, one person. That's good. The images of heaven is a place with, you know, angels and clouds and harps. You should have brought a magazine or whatever. In the comedy, The Good Place, heaven is full of people who are overly nice, overly polite, overly concerned with following rules. Revelation describes heaven as a place without sin, no abominations, no falsehood, no faithlessness, no murder, no adultery, no lives. Heaven will be a place without sin. So if nothing was wrong with the world, uh, would there be anything to do? If there was no devil, would we have to invent one, you know, just to keep things interesting? If there were no sins, would we need to come up with them, you know, to to make life exciting? If heaven, if God's future were just wholly good, would it be boring? Well, I really don't think so. The thought that we need evil in the world for life to be interesting just seems to me to be small-minded. Uh, It's a failure of imagination. I mean, is gossip as satisfying as friendship? Is lust as satisfying as love? Isn't the really boring thing all the pettiness and meanness and distrust that we face day after day after day? Why can't we imagine a good world that's not boring? That's what I want to know. Is it because we can't bear to hope for something better? Is it because we can't imagine what that better thing would be? Or have we really bought into the lie that sin does bring pleasure and excitement to life? I mean, really? In this culture? It seems to me it's harder and harder to believe that sin actually leads to freedom and self-realization and real enjoyment of life. I've read stories that have come out of the Me Too movement. They're horrifying. I find myself angered and saddened by the damage that men's lust do to women. And yes, it is usually men hurting women, and it's on a broad scale. I mean, the abuse of power, the dehumanization, the objectification, the years and years it can take to heal from that trauma. I'm sorry. Anger and sadness are my primary response reading those stories. but. I also hear about the men and I think to myself, what? <laughs> it's weird what they do. How, how miserable do you need to be? What brings somebody to that point? So it just seems to me that sin is not a very good idea. It doesn't bring enjoyment, it's misery. We do much better without it. We do much better if we could imagine a good future. And that's a vision that Revelation will give us. Okay, the second rival vision is that heaven won't be boring because there is no heaven. There is no ultimate future for humanity. The future is what we can make of it and nothing else. And when we die, we die. Our memory will fade. The human race may not survive its worst tendencies in the next century, but if we do in about... Five billion years, the sun will become a red giant and engulf the earth, and the whole history of humanity will mean nothing to no one because no one will be left. It will be like we never existed at all. In in this rival vision, the Christian view of the future is nothing more than human projection, wishful thinking, pretend. Revelation speaks of a new heaven, a new earth, a divine promise that all will be made new, and the rival vision says, yeah, that sounds great, but... It's fantasy. There is no ultimate future. There's only the present. There can be a sort of pride uh, of what feels like hard-nosed realism, as though uh, believing something undesirable makes it more likely to be true. And people who believe this may become impatient with Christians. Uh, They may say, if you think a future world awaits, then you can escape your responsibilities to the present world. Or if they're more hostile, they may say something like this. You let creation burn because you think your God will make a new one. You're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. In this rival vision, God's future is fantasy, illusion, nothing more than a projection of human hope. But the questions this raises for me are where Christian hope actually comes from. Does it come from fantasy? What basis do we have for hoping that God will bring about a good future? And um, does hope for a good future make for apathy in the present? Not necessarily, right? I believe that God will bring about a good future and it inspires me to work toward that future. Isn't, um, and isn't creation itself improbable? Isn't human existence a sheer, unexplainable gift? If God is creation's cause, if God created all things, can't the same God make all things new? As I read Revelation, I see hope for the future grounded in the past. This is true of the entire New Testament. The hope of a good future inspires moral courage and rightful action in the present, even to the point of suffering and death. And where would early Christians have gotten that idea, that future glory may come from present suffering? Where would that come from? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, right? The ground of Christian hope is a past event. Revelation one five calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead, which implies there will be others. Early Christians interpreted Jesus' resurrection as creation's destiny. That is the ultimate future for humanity. The third rival vision is that there is no future for earth, but there is heaven. Heaven is the end of the world. Salvation is escape from creation. So much is wrong in the world, all that will be done away with. Uh, This is a rival vision that comes from Christians. It's about 150 years old. It's a future hope that does absolve Christians of responsibility to the present. Call it evacuation theology. We're out of here. In this rival vision, the end is all darkness for most people, except for the select few that God plucks up out of the world into heaven just before the world's destruction. The future means nothing for the present, except that you should be afraid of the fate that awaits you if you aren't prepared for it. The present world doesn't matter. Unless you're a pastor, like me, or a missionary, your work doesn't matter, because it deals with the physical, not the spiritual. The environment doesn't matter, because all of that will be done away with, too. This rival vision looks at the words new heaven and new earth, and interprets them as a destruction and replacement of creation as such. When God says, I am making all things new, they hear God say, I am making all new things. The old will be gone. Physical creation will be replaced by, I don't know, spiritual reality or something. If you can tell, uh, this is the one that bothers me the most. Doesn't it imply that God is faithless to what God has made if God destroys it all and just starts over? I mean, doesn't the resurrection of the body mean that God will redeem creation in some form? Doesn't the good future that God promises help us imagine the good present that God desires? So, okay, Uh, We've heard about three rival visions for God's future, heaven will be boring, or heaven won't be boring because there is no ultimate future, or there's no future for earth, but there is for heaven. And to be clear, I don't find any of these rival visions particularly helpful or true, and I know that I haven't disproved any of them or anything like that, but I, I did want to name them as something different than what's happening in Revelation. And so, finally, we've arrived at Revelation. It's an extraordinary book. What is God's future that Revelation discloses to us? When Revelation paints a picture of the future, what do we find? We find God himself among us. Look at Revelation 21.2. a holy city descends from heaven which is at once a place where we dwell a new Jerusalem and it's also a people joined as a bride to God with much joy In verse 3 the image moves from being urban to being cosmic God dwells with his peoples in a new heaven and a new earth Um. Verse 4, in this new heaven and new earth, there is no more death, no more mourning, no more tears or toils, no more pain, no more cries. The former things have passed away, and with them, the first heaven and the first earth. They pass the way sickness passes away when we become healthy. Right now, we are in the middle. We know tears. We know toil. We know pain. We know crying. These are the former things that will pass away. Verse 5, God says, I will make all things new. Verse 6, God completes new creation. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. At the end of it all is God. What makes new creation new is God's presence. There's more to be said. Look at Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The river of the water of life. What is its source? You'd notice that. Its source is the throne of God and of the Lamb. The The image of, of rivers of flowing water comes from the prophet Ezekiel who imagines a river flowing east from God's future temple bringing life everywhere it goes, making the Dead Sea fresh, making trees good for fruit whose leaves are good for healing and John the seer who wrote Revelation does one better. It's like a spiritual one-upmanship. The river comes not from the temple It comes from the throne of God itself, and on its banks are no ordinary trees. The tree of life itself is there. Look at verse 2. On either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I find this vision astonishing. The whole world becomes a garden of Eden, a garden of delight. And here's another thing. God's presence in this new creation looks like life. Life. Did you notice that? The river of the water of life, the tree of life, the healing of the nations. God is the source of the new life that all creation will inherit. If this is not enough, God also becomes the source of light, glory, splendor, brightness. Look at verse 5. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It's as though new creation is the dawning of God's face on the earth. There's this theme throughout scripture. Uh, No mortal can see God's face and live. If a human sees God, that person will die. But in the new heavens and new earth, when death is no more and humans are no longer mortal, um, well, look at verse 3. Here's what will happen. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. No more night, no more darkness, no more hiddenness, No more concealment. To see God's face is to see who God truly is. Fully to belong to the God who made us. To be drawn irresistibly to the worship of God and the Lamb. This is extra. This is like a sidebar. It's okay if you don't follow. Revelation is perhaps the most meticulous literary composition in the entire New Testament, and numbers are often symbolic. How many times a word or a phrase will appear can be symbolic? The phrase God and the Lamb occurs seven times in Revelation. Seven, what does seven mean? Seven symbolizes fullness or completeness, and what we just heard is its seventh appearance. To worship God and the Lamb and to see the face of God. So this is the wonder of Revelation. Once you see how its imagery and symbol works, it says more than the words say. The seventh time that God and the Lamb appear together, we see God's face. That means fully, completely. Nothing is held back anymore. Praise God for that. All right, that's the end of the sidebar. Okay. So what is Revelation's vision for a good future? The heavens and the earth are made new by God's presence. And God's presence becomes life for us, it becomes light for us. The good future that God has for us is God himself dwelling with us in a renewed creation. That's good news. That's a future to long for, right? But who is the us? Who does God give himself to with such abandon? Who will drink from the river of the water of life? Who will God let see his face? This brings us back to chapter 21, to the passage we heard read this morning and the contrast between those who conquer and inherit and those whose part is in the second death. Look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 21. Notice how there's a contrast set up. By the way, as a preacher, the temptation is always to lop off, you know, the verse 8 of a passage like this so you don't have to talk about it. But either the text serves your preaching or your preaching serves the text. And I can't escape the text. Okay, um, so here we go. Uh, verse, verse 7, 21, seven, 7 The one who conquers will have this heritage, that is, to drink of the spring of the water of life. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So what is happening here? Uh, Well, remember we've dropped in at the very end of the book. We we might have missed some things uh, coming to this point. You need to know the whole story of Revelation to understand what's happening in this judgment. Revelation is a story about God's power against the power of the world. In particular, God's power against the power of Rome. God overcomes Rome in Revelation, which is figured as a beast. Uh, Rome is a beast which represents its violent oppression of peoples, and a harlot, which represents Rome's economic exploitation of the world. God gains victory over the evil in the world. Uh, Revelation might very well be the most anti-imperial, anti-Empire, anti-Roman literature produced in the whole early Roman Empire. Its, Its critique of Rome is relentless, cutting. But God does not conquer like humans conquer. God is not like a human tyrant, just bigger and more powerful or something like that. It's not like a Marvel superhero. Definitely not like a DC superhero. Just punch things and everything gets better. God is not like that. Neither is God distant, disinterested. One of the most moving sentences to me in modern theology is this one. What unites God with us is that he does not will to be God without us. What unites God with us is that he does not will to be God without us. And that makes God's victory over evil costly. Revelation tells us that God overcomes evil through the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ. Jesus faithfully witnessed the truth about God, and for that was put to death by the powers of the world. But God raised him. And this was God's victory over evil. The death and resurrection of Jesus, the basis of Christian hope. The victory is finished, but not quite complete. In the present, God gives to the church the calling that Jesus had. Now we are to be faithful witnesses to God, even to the point of suffering and death. Why? Why put people through that, God? It's because God's heart is for people of every nation, every tongue, every tribe, to know and worship him in a restored creation. Revelation envisions two things that on the surface seem contradictory. On the one hand, you have the final conversion of all nations to the worship of God. They'll inherit the glory of God in a renewed creation. We're people among those nations. On the other hand, you have a final judgment on all who, in the end, refuse life. Refuse the life that comes from God. Revelation has us caught between two places, between the new Jerusalem and and between Babylon. Jerusalem represents the splendor of God's glory. Babylon represents the splendor that can come from exploitation and violence. It's falsehood, it's deceit. So what does it mean to be one of the ones who conquers one of the ones who conquers and inherits what God has. In Revelation, conquering means that we suffer because we will not be complicit in the world's power or in its sins, in its opposition to God, in its totalizing claims to alone give life. It means that we do not cower to the world's power. I didn't mean to make that rhyme, but there it is. We don't succumb to its deceptions, to its violence, to its idolatry. It means that we thirst for the life that comes from God alone. So the prospect of second death that we heard about is not given as a kind of perverse comfort that our enemies now are really going to suffer later. It's given as a warning to us not to give in to the false death-dealing ways of the world's power. Faithful witness, for us, is suffering for the truth of God, just like Jesus did. And this warning isn't meant to instill fear as much as it is to instill joy and hope. It's given as an encouragement to the church to repent and return to the worship of God who alone guarantees a good future for us. God's future is open to all peoples. This is a timely word for Christians all around the world today. Remember your future. One day we will hear a voice from the throne say, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with humanity. Behold, I am making all things new. One day, we will see God's face and live. Thanks be to God.